Welcome to the Kinky Cast, a sexually explicit podcast for adults. You are listening to a weekly publication, produced every Friday morning. This is our weekly exploration in the kinky world of BDSM and alternative relationships. Don't forget to stop by our webpage for information about this show and others. KinkyCast.com Cassie will introduce today's guest. Today on KinkyCast episode 490, we bring you two MDs and a mic, and a social worker too. This is a seventh year we recorded this event at Frolican and bring the doctors to you with the answers to questions affecting all kinksters. I'm Dr. Peggy Sue. Hey, I'm Dr. Dan. So we're both physicians, I'm family medicine, he's infectious disease, and we like to come here to answer whatever questions you have. We call this two MDs and a microphone because we handle a lot of different topics depending on what you want to talk about. Because we are discussing general medical advice and not treating you specifically as our patient, if you have further questions, this is not specific to you. So that's the disclaimer. That's Um, the medical liability disclaimer. So we are not your personal physician. So the things we try to address are things that are general rules of thought relative to the community. Like things, our panel is mainly things like, I wish I could ask my doctor this if I knew like my doctor was kinky or or something like that. But yeah, we have to get started with that sort of disclaimer. But let's talk about the three of us. If you want to start with your intro, your background. So I'm family medicine. I've been board certified for about 10 years now. I had previously worked as faculty physician, worked as hospitalist, and now I have my own clinic. So I've done primary care the whole time, and so that's where I'm coming from. Awesome. Yes. I'm in Chattanooga. Yes. So Peggy and I met in medical school. We were like the two freaky people in medical school. It was great. Weird people recognize weird. Oh yeah, we recognized it right away. So, I'm Doc Dan. Uh, I'm an infectious disease physician and also internal medicine, but I primarily just do infectious disease now. The path to get to infectious disease is through internal medicine, but I am still double board certified in both those things, and I am here in Atlanta. I work out in my clinics in Lawrenceville, and I work in hospitals in Snellville and Duluth and Lawrenceville, so it's great. So, because it's two MDs and a microphone and a social worker. Because almost all kink is very social. Yeah. My name is Robin. I'm a social worker. I've been a social worker for 23 years. I've almost always worked in crisis work. I've worked in a sex abuse clinic. I've worked in psychiatry. And I'm now a medical social worker. And so I'm here to, to keep tabs of the questions that you guys have and some of the information that you're sharing. I'm going to put together a comprehensive resource guide for people who are here in Metro Atlanta for some of the different needs that, that we do have in the community, free clinics, the ways to get prepped for low or no cost, ways to get STI testing, where to go, how and to- prep And prep being the medications you can take before exposure to HIV, Thank potentially. You. Yeah. yeah, and what we're gonna get into that, we'll talk about. Yeah. So I'm going to pass this around. If you're local to the metro Atlanta area and you would like to have the resource guide emailed to you, if you could please put your email down, I will send a blind carbon copy out. I figured it was better than hand you a piece of paper that's going to get lost on the floor of the con. Yeah. So, go ahead. That's all right. That's all. To define local Atlanta, because we're from down in Macon. So uh, right next to your name, where you're from? And I'll make sure that we're getting you resources. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. 
We like to ask questions to you guys, or if you guys had questions for us, if you want to do anonymous question, you can write it on that pad if you don't feel comfortable. We had put out like a post on the the FetLife group asking for questions, and I got a couple questions. And we can always start there if you'd like, or if any of you guys have a burning question. I think the first question that we start with is going to be very relevant, because it's the one we get the most. I would say, which is how frequently should I be getting STI tested? And how do I approach this, especially considering if I have multiple partners or different sort of risk exposures? And when we talk about these things, oftentimes, unfortunate, and this is why we do this panel, a lot of physicians, A, will not have much time to see you as an individual, and then may not ask the right questions. So it's it oftentimes can be really hard to communicate that. Getting to understand your physician to understand what your risks are. And that's part of the reason why folks like me and Megan exist. One of the ways you could say, maybe I don't want to start at base level when we came in here talking about introducing to your doctor saying what the lifestyle is, but maybe you want to find someone that is already knowledgeable in it. How do you achieve that? One of the good ways to do it is to look at the National Coalition for Sexual Freedom, Kink Aware, and Kink Knowledgeable Provider database. I believe we're both on it. I'm on it. I haven't updated my information because I recently yeah. opened my clinic, so I need to do that. <laughs> yeah. Also, be part of what you're sending us the information. The how to contact? Yes. Yeah. yeah. We have our cards up here. Absolutely. Yeah. If you're near either of us, we both have business cards. If you want. Yeah. Yeah. You can absolutely come see us. Yeah. And I will make sure that you know how to get to those lists for the National Coalition as well. Yeah. But when I get asked this question of like how often should I get tested and things like that, there is no one clear answer for that, to be honest with you. It is completely dependent on risk factors. When I see people and I do testing, I'm always asking about types of sex, protection used, number of partners, gender partners, different types of acts that are done. And I use that to base my testing recommendations and also talking about pre-exposure prophylaxis and post-exposure prophylaxis for things like HIV that I think are really important. Whereas most primary care people, when they're taught the base CDC recommendations of HIV testing once while you're an adult, hepatitis C testing once while if you're a baby boomer or have risk factors. So the kind of base that people get taught without asking about sexual risk factors is pretty skimpy. So one really good way to maybe put yourself in, into that position where you can talk about these things is actually, if you feel like you would benefit, would be to talk to your physician about doing pre-exposure prophylaxis. And it's totally okay if they don't understand it or if they ask them to send you somewhere. So there's a lot, and Robin will provide resources about this, but there are often dedicated pre-exposure prophylaxis clinics in any sort of major city, and a lot of them, even if you don't have insurance, they can help you and either give it to you or cost you for free. And the sort of landscape of PrEP has evolved over the last few years, and even since we did this panel last time. Last time we did this in 2019, there was just oral pre-exposure prophylaxis. We now have injectable. Have any of you guys heard about that? Injectable PrEP, yeah. So it's something relatively new. So rather than having to remember to take a pill every day, there's a medication called cabotegravir, and you come in every two months, and you just get a shot in the butt. So it's an intramuscular shot, and the, the efficacy rate is 
pretty good with it. There have been like a couple isolated failures with it, but the efficacy is quite good. And then if you want to go for the best coverage, most likely the best studied really medication, what used to be Truvada is generic now. So you can oftentimes get this for low to no cost if you go to a prep clinic. So asking a physician about prep is a great way to open the door to having those conversations about multiple partners and different things because you're starting off, you're leading it rather than waiting for them to start the dance. I think it's good. And the other great thing about prep and being involved in prep care is you're gonna get in regularly for STM testing. So all my prep patients come in every three months. And then every, on those three month visits, you're asking about partners, you're asking about risk factors. But if you're an adult going to your primary care and they say, we're gonna get yearly screening labs, that does not necessarily include sexually transmitted infections. A lot of primary care, that is not part of what they automatically think of as the yearly screening. So don't assume that's in there. Yeah. <clears throat> I've been pretty open with my primary care physician. So about every six months they say, hey, it's time for me an STI panel. I'm like, okay. And they join the blood right then and there. I get a full panel about every six months. I'm fluid bonded with my primary partner. Anybody else? If there's not a condom involved, I ain't going near you. Yeah, and the other thing is the numbers are great for any fluid bonded pairs for if someone is on treatment and has a non-detectable <coughs> viral load, the numbers are great. Yeah, for, yeah, so for yeah, undetectable. Risk. Yeah, so there's something called U equals U. I mean, have you heard of that? Undetectable equals untransmissible. Yeah, it's been extremely well studied that if yeah, your HIV is well controlled, you're not going to transmit it to others. But getting to what you're saying though, there's something really important I want to add on. If you're not, if they don't know exactly what you're doing, a lot of times when you say I want a full panel, you're not getting the right testing. So a lot of the patients that I see, it's amazing to me that I ask them, oh, have you had a pharyngeal chlamydia gonorrhea screening? Right or rectal chlamydia gonorrhea screening, or have you had a rectal pap smear to look for evidence of precancerous changes from HPV, which is really important for individuals that have receptive anal sex. And almost never. In the, like, I was getting my full panel STI testing, but their physicians didn't know those risk factors or they didn't know to test for them. So, if, if you're a man and you say, I need to be tested for gonorrhea chlamydia and they assume you're straight, they're just going to do urine chlamydia gonorrhea testing. And, and that's very specific to you got to test where you were exposed. Yeah, absolutely. If the fluid exposure was in your throat and you have a throat problem, that's where you got to test. A urine test won't necessarily show it. And we know the problems fester in the dark and communication is the key. Communication with your partners, communication with your doctors. And when you're going to your doctor, you are, they're there for you. And so you need to tell them how they can best meet your needs. And that can include talking about your lifestyle. Yeah, and even if your doctor is completely uncomfortable with that, if you ask for the test, the quickest way they have of getting you out of there is to do the test. <laughs> so even if they're not great, <laughs> It's easy enough if you ask for a test for them to add the test on without having to talk to you about things they might be uncomfortable with because unfortunately we do not get good training about this, and, if at all. And to be like perfectly honest, like for things like rectal swaps and 
if they want to do it themselves, if they know how to do it, like, you can offer it. You can say, I'm okay with doing this myself, if they do it. I always, I always volunteer to do it because I'm like, I've done this thousands of times. Bend over. <laughs> I've done this a lot. This is my Monday. My Monday, my Monday is going into your phone. And <laughs> I have a weird job. But yeah, so those sort of things are, I think, are really important. Having that communication, if they're not okay with the lifestyle or the testing you're asking for, asking them to refer you out. I think is helpful and then also if you're either underinsured or uninsured finding that community resource and Robin will help out with that that does prep or if you live in Atlanta there's another place called Positive Impact that's a really great place that does income-based healthcare and they're focused in LGBT healthcare STI screening but they also do things like LGBTQ focused mental health care which mm -hmm. is a hard resource to find affordably and what I, it's been great at this panel meeting other folks that are doing in that healthcare, a mental health care space that are providing affordable healthcare for folks that are specifically tailored to LGBTQ. And we know, Robin and I know quite a few of those, mm -hmm. if, we, if you guys want to talk about that later, because I think that's a big thing, especially with COVID. There's been a, a huge mental health crisis in addition to physical health crisis because so many people were out of the healthcare access for those times during the pandemic. But also asking friends or anyone that you know of in the community because it's also risky for doctors to advertise that they do certain things because of the political environment. So like I do transgender hormone therapy if someone wants it, but I'm not gonna put that on a website because then I'm gonna probably get some other problems that would target me. And so, yeah. 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 And so there's lots of people that you may have to find out kind of word of mouth or through the National Coalition yeah. for Sexual Health because of those things, because the political environment for doctors to be out about what they take care of can be complicated. Yeah. And it sucks. It does suck. You practiced in a very rural area for a long time. She was in yeah, I was up in Appalachia for a long time, Yeah, which was a bit of a different environment and things don't always present the same when they come from back in the hollers. <laughs> but I'm in Chattanooga now. But yeah, it can be difficult sometimes to find those resources, but just because it's not listed doesn't mean they don't offer it. Yeah. and. I think if you live in a city that has infectious disease physicians, that is a good place to start. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of us went into this field to serve this community. You're not gonna be starting at a low level, typically with infectious disease physicians. Especially if they're, I would say, of my sort of generation or younger. There are some old infectious disease doctors that may not quite understand the lifestyle as much. But the people who go into it now, I think are, driven to help this community. And that was the big reason why I got into it. And we differ on this one thing. I've always been really open about it. Ever since I started private practice, I said, okay, rather than ever have to worry about being outed or anything like that, I just write on my public bio, I said, I do this for the LGBTQ kink, poly, all community. Like how many doctor profiles have you ever read that mentions like kink and poly? And alt. And I'm like, I want people to be relaxed. That's the thing. It's like, I want to be upfront about it. 
because I want when people come see me, I want them already to be like, I can take a breath. This is someone that's melon. This is somebody that knows the lifestyle. And you never have to explain anything because I'm like, I'm going to give you pro tips. And my absolute favorite thing is when someone maybe didn't see the bio or they get referred to me by another physician. And I can tell that they're part of the community or like, do you go to cons? <laughs> yeah, not just dragon, but do you go to any other cons? Like, what is around Easter? <laughs> Whereas I may not advertise, I see primary care all comers of all sorts. But I do make sure there's subtle signs. The mask I have out front, if anyone wants a mask or feels sick, I have tie-dye, rainbow, all the things. Okay. <laughs> so I try and make it obvious to people who are looking. Yeah. So yeah, a lot of times those, us folks that are in the field or allies, we will wear like little markers. We'll wear like a transgender flag pin or we'll wear things to basically allow it. And what's interesting is all my years of doing this and being somewhat public about it, I've only had one doctor asked me about it <laughs> ever. They're like, yeah, some old doctors like in the cafeteria. What's kink? <laughs> this is a long conversation for a lunch. <laughs> I will say all the years I worked in the hospital, I probably got a lot of questions from nurses in the community more than yeah. anything else. <laughs> yeah. Nurses and teachers. Well, needing information. <laughs> yes. Yes. So that, that was my little spiel. Oh, so really quickly, so pre-exposure prophylaxis, I mentioned also post-exposure prophylaxis. I want to go into those distinctions. So both the oral and injectable PrEP, their efficacy rate is in the high 90% <coughs> as long as you're with the oral medication that you're taking. In. And this is specific to HIV? Yeah, and this is specific to HIV. There's also something called post-exposure prophylaxis, and that's if you had a high-risk exposure, and you're like, oh, common broke, or there's something you're worried about, what you want to do is within 72 hours, you want to get started on what's called post-exposure prophylaxis. And they, it is a different category than pre-exposure. And the sooner the better. Yeah, so with pre-exposure prophylaxis, you're either taking an oral medication called Truvada or Descovy, which is which are two medications against HIV, or the injectable cabotegravir, which is one. When you're treating post-exposure prophylaxis, you're using a full HIV regimen. So you can't use PrEP to treat a exposure. I think that's a really important caveat because some people may say, oh, I had these pills and I forgot to take them. You want to make sure that you're taking a, a full HIV treatment regimen. So I usually start people on a three-drug regimen and you treat them about a month. And if you do that, if you get them within 72 hours, the probability of them acquiring HIV is, again, almost zero. So it's important to know that there are options for you, but it's a matter of knowing them and getting there in time. And oftentimes, if you are really worried about it, you go right to the emergency room and they'll know exactly. They'll know exactly what to do and they can get you set up. And oftentimes, they'll get you in with an infectious disease doctor as part of that. So they'll get you the maybe the first week and then they'll say, okay, we're gonna get you an infectious disease. And then we'll also do additional screening. So I think it's really important to know those things because you know, accidents do happen. And knowing that you have both pre-exposure prophylaxis as an option and post-exposure prophylaxis as an option is really important. So. I have also heard a lot of information about how the HPV vaccine yeah. is not just for kids. Oh God, yeah. Wow, that's a <laughs> great question. <laughs> Please tell me more. <laughs> I'm not going to be the only one talking. I promise. I personally know because I was at the age where I did not get it as a young person and was not approved 
when I was in the age group when they started approvals because insurance didn't pay for it and I was poor at the time. So I'm 41 and I recently completed my series because I finally got it covered and finally got all my ducks in a row to get the full series. So you can still get it as an adult. Yeah. Lots of younger people got it as part of their regular routine, but you can still get it if you have not gotten it before. If you've already had HPV though. You should still get it. So the, I, I was told that there was no point in me getting it because I had HPV at 17 or 18. So many different types of HPV. So the, Gar the Gardasil 9, the current one we have, covers nine different types. So unless they gave you like a type specific, but it is recommended even if you've had any of the high-risk HPV types, it's still recommended to get it because it protects against other types. And HPV oftentimes can be something that one may clear and reacquire. And it's up to 45 now. So it used to be up to 26 because when they were developing the vaccine, they saw that the highest benefit was in groups before they were sexually active. So that's why they specifically target typically 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds, or you want to. So or if earlier. you've already had a type of HPV, it may not protect you against that type, but there's other types. No, it It'll decrease the risk. Yeah, so the gar there's more than nine types of HPV. Gardasil is focused against the nine types that are most likely to cause cervical cancer, throat cancer, penile and anal warts, or any kind of genital warts. So all of those things, you can drastically mitigate the risk by having a vaccine, specifically cervical. It is now 45, yeah. So it's a three-dose series, and it lasts six months. So you come in like you're the, the series is over six months. Yeah, so it's zero, two, and six months. Okay. And it's a lifelong. You don't theoretically. Need start it you're now. Good. Okay. Yeah, you're good as long as you start it before you're over forty-five. Getting it paid for can be a problem. So I would still do it. Would it. Still be okay. To yes, get it. and I do this. Okay. I do this in my own practice. So if I have folks that I think would benefit from it or have multiple partners. Yeah, you can pay out of pocket for it and we can try to run it through your insurance, but oftentimes they won't cover things that are out of the If sort they of don't have to. What does it cost? That's what I was thinking. Around 900, right? Yeah, so, the full it, series. so all three doses with visits, I usually tell people like budget out about a thousand dollars and then it'll be somewhere in the ballpark. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so that's for all three doses. So, so it's not cheap, but it is absolutely worth it. And is it, should we go to an infectious disease doctor or yeah. my next visit to my OBGYN? Your OB will I... probably have it. I would call in advance and just say, hey, do you guys carry Gardasil? Okay. Or, and the other thing is, do you have it in stock? We will sometimes run out of it and need to reorder it. So it's a good idea that if you're planning on getting it, have them call beforehand and they will hear back it for you. <laughs> so that, this is, all, oh, this is yeah. a super important thing. Yeah. And make sure they're willing to give it to you. I'm over, yeah. over the age, and I have to, to clarify, you're making this as a recommendation for everyone. If you're, Male if you're, and female. Yeah. Everyone. Because everybody has throats. Everybody has... Especially the folks at this convention. HPV yeah. is the leading cause of throat cancer. Especially the folks at this yeah. convention. But yeah, a topic we love to talk about is STIs that you can prevent through vaccination. So I think this is something that does not get talked about enough. And that's just one of them. So hepatitis A and B are another one that if you have multiple partners or engage in like minimum sex with men, things like that, specific, or any type of any like anus involvement. Yeah, any analingus, things like that. It's high risk for hepatitis A. And unfortunately these things don't get asked out 
asked enough doctors. So tell me about your rimming. Thir that's my Thursdays. But we, unfortunately, people aren't getting asked about it. And uh, when they think hepatitis A, they think of it as a tropical disease because you ate some bad bananas when you were in Costa Rica. But no, <laughs> in the United States, a lot of hepatitis A comes from, from sex. And that is both the hepatitis A and B vaccines last a long time too. So they're both multiple vaccines. So hepatitis A is gonna be two doses B3, but you can get them combined in something called Twinrix, and that's typically what we do. It's a combination of hepatitis A and B vaccine. So you, you get it over three doses. And oftentimes the protection will last 10 years. Now, let's say you've had, if you're in this room and you're fortunate enough and you've had those vaccines already, but it's been a while and you want to say, hey, am I still protected? Because the vaccines do take over time. You can ask them to check your titers. So with hepatitis B, we can check what's called the surface antibody titer. And if it's over 10, you're still protected. If it's under 10, you can get a booster. Basically, it's saying, hey, do you still have something that recognizes this in your bloodstream? Yes. What if your timing is off on getting the vaccines? So I was late on getting my second my second Gardasil 9 shot. Yeah. So does that mean you have to start from scratch? Or How long has it been? I, I think I got my second one after about five months. You might still be okay. There is a little bit of a, like a window period, but I would make sure I got it. Some people say you can get away with two. In your case, I would make sure you get your third. Yeah. Okay, so how soon should I get it? As soon as you, so your office your opens one? up on Monday. <laughs> oh, for your second one or your third one? Oh, for your third one, I would probably wait about four months after your second. But yeah, the second one, if you haven't gotten the second one yet, just as soon as you can get it. Because any kind of missed vaccine, usually as soon as you can get it is going to be the best time. Yeah. But now with the Hep A and B series, I work in a hospital, so they offer those. So I was like, yeah, cool, I'll get that. And then I, I didn't do the right scheduling mm -hmm. and I had to start again. Yeah. Um, so that, because then again, they did a timer to see if my blood showed that it was reactive yeah. or did not. So remember, there's no harm in getting additional shots. And these are things that you can test titers for too. So if you feel like, oh, it's been a long time or I missed my series or I, out of, I fell out of care, it's okay to restart it. It's not gonna be harmful. Yeah, and most of the time they can pull it up on the CDC website and it'll, be, it'll have a recommendation for when people are outside the range. Yeah. One of the other questions that we got was about, and I'm sure this is, good, this is a hot topic always, is about Herbie's testing. But controversial issue in the infectious disease community because so many people are positive for HSV-1. Does this actually influence decision making? It's, it, but it absolutely does for HSV-2. So studies have found that folks who detect that they have HSV-2 are more likely to use condoms and have discussions and also abstain from when they have lesions. Let's do a little bit of a primer though on HSV 1 and 2. I think and HSV is herpes. Herpes simplex virus. Yeah, sorry. If I'm using any lingo you guys don't know, just shut up, stop. What does that mean? And we'll fix that. Most people think of HSV 1 as the like, okay, HSV 1 is mouth sores, cold sores. HSV 2 is general herpes. And while that is mostly accurate, you can have HSV 1 in the general area, you can have HSV 2 in the mouth. Yeah, it was more accurate in history books. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the main distinctions between the two are that HSV2 
recurs more frequently. A lot of people with HSV1 may never actually have lesions. They may just be asymptomatic shutters. And oftentimes folks with HSV1, when you look at the vast majority of them, that do have symptomatic lesions will only have a few, like maybe one per year or less, versus HSV2, oftentimes that number is usually in the four or five range. That is, I would say, like the major distinction between the two. And lesions can come and go and you haven't necessarily gotten the virus completely out of your body, it likes to hide and stick around and you may or may not see lesions when you have the virus shedding. Right. Once you're, it typically is through mucous membranes or epithelium, and then what will happen is it will infect your nerves, your neurons, and it goes into what's called a latency period. So it's hiding out from your immune system, and then will travel along like the axon of the nerve and reinfect your epithelial cells. And what happens here, there's a split. If someone has a, there's a type of T cell called a CD8 T cell, which is part of your immune system, that CD8 T cell can recognize herpes at that point and essentially eliminate it from your mucous membrane sites and you'll never have any lesions. However, you still will be shedding it. So that's why some people have, will be shedders, but have no lesions. Sometimes the CD8 cells do not win the battle against herpes simplex and then you will develop active vesicles or lesions, which are also full of virus. But that also means that even though you may not necessarily see lesions, there may still be some virus transmission. And when it comes to HSV, it is usually a duration that you're with someone. It's not usually from a single sex act. So of the studies that were done looked at how many sex acts does it take typically to acquire HSV from what we call a zero discordant partner, where one person has it, one person doesn't. And on the average, it takes about three or four months or between the high 30 to 40 like sexual acts to acquire HSV. So it isn't usually a single thing. Some folks are can get it from a single exposure, but when you look at over a sort of wider population, it's usually in longer term relationships where you see the HSV transmission. Yeah. Single transmission or single exposure transmission be predominantly with the lesions present? So it's a higher it's, it's a higher probability, but it can happen with you either. Just shed quiet shedding cells. Yeah, you can still have transmission in that case. So potentially, yeah, yeah. There's always there is always a potential. It is a lower risk for sure, but anything can happen after one time, unfortunately. Yeah. How long would it take it to show up in your system after that exposure? Yeah, the typical sort of onset to when you would have antibodies to it is about five weeks. So that's the other thing is if you're worried about an exposure, for a lot of STI testing, you don't want to test immediately like the next day. So it may be several weeks. So in the case of HSV, yeah. Is there, the tests themselves, how yeah. accurate are those? Because yeah. I, I know this, that this I, is I, what I, the I, question I'm is. Sore, and then I go in and my test says I'm negative. All right, and my next test says I'm negative, and my next test says I'm negative. I, I so it's really important. So if you have active, there's different types of testing. So if you have a lesion, you can do direct viral testing, which is the most accurate testing. Okay. Then there is no, there is no question. Now, the important thing is if you have that lesion, if you need to get tested ASAP, all right, because over time, 
as your body resolves the HSV infection at that time, you will not have necessarily PCRable virus. Okay. So if you can, if you do have a painful oral lesion or genital lesion, try to get that tested right away via direct testing or PCR testing, because that will tell you that actually will detect the viral particles. Versus the other type of testing is serological testing. And I, I have a update to stuff I said before in previous years, which is why I want to talk about this, because I got a question about HSV2 testing and low levels of antibodies, where a lot of people will have these, when you get your test results back, it'll be as a number or a titer. And what they found is the higher the titer, the more likely it is a true positive. What I see with HSV2 testing when I'm doing screening is I'll have these folks that just make, just barely make positive. And when it's under, I think it's three, the false positivity rate is a lot higher. So if it's over three, it's in the true positive rate is in the high 90%. And, and it all depends on what And every test will test somebody positive that's actually negative and somebody negative that's actually positive. So when we say true positive, that means the ones where we think the test is accurate yeah. because no test is perfect, unfortunately, which yeah. is why you want to Get it more than once. So with HSV2 specifically, there's something called an inhibition test. So this is helpful if you have one of those scenarios where you have a low positive. There's a secondary test called an inhibition test that you can get that is specifically designed to determine between a false positive and a true positive. So I think that would be helpful to all the people that have that or listening to this podcast recording at home. Where do you get that test? So you would ask the person who tested you for HSV in the first place, and they would be able to, you say, okay, I need the inhibition test as a confirmatory. So most labs helpful. that do test can do it. Now, whether or not your doctor knows to look for it, that's another question. Yeah, and again, this is... Um, but labs, if they pull out the lab book of all the tests that are available, they'll find it. Yeah. What, all right, I've been talking too much. <laughs> and with, with HSV 1 and 2 testing, not all doctors will do it. And sometimes even when I've gone to the GYN, they'll say, oh, no, we're not doing HSV 1 and 2. I'm like, oh, no, we are. I, I want that test specific. And so sometimes you, you have to be your own advocate when you go in a healthcare setting. And I think that there's more bias maybe with uh, your regular doctor, uh, just PCP, as opposed to your, like, uh, a female going to a GYN. Or, or definitely not the same bias going to an infectious disease doctor. <laughs> I have a question about Dr. Park that I know now is a good time to No, go for it. Uh, so I wanted to see about getting on uh, and went to, I'm in South Carolina, and I went to a clinic that they were not treating me because I'm a cis woman. They said, we have two, two drugs that are available and would be covered, but only these other groups. You have to be either positive or be a male or trans, trans woman. Oh, that's for crap. Yeah. Okay. That's completely wrong. Yeah. There, there are some places where the primary care may not be as well informed. Sometimes you can check in with the health department as far as what kind of treatments they do because sometimes there's sexual health specific clinics in very rural areas. Sometimes they can be a better resource for those kind of things. 
but unfortunately sometimes you just got to keep pushing because yeah. doctors are people too and just like lots of people are assholes it, there's plenty what, of doctors it, who are assholes there's been a huge shift in hiv and who is getting hiv over the last decade or so because of there was so much awareness in the men of sex with men community that the hiv acquisition rates in those communities started dropping and where it went up was in cisgendered women specifically cisgendered women of color and transgender individuals yeah. that that when it comes to new hiv infection where is it actually increasing it's in those groups and a lot of that is unfortunately because of this sort of stigma that people think this is a gay disease. You said that the drug wasn't researched in women of my age or whatever, or who I sleep with. Or yeah. So it wouldn't happen. But I was wondering if the new injectable is available to everyone. So for cabotegravir, it's, I would ask about it. So one of the big caveats with cabotegravir is getting it covered. I've had enormous difficulty in getting cabotegravir either as HIV treatment or as PrEP. The group that has the best, or the drug that has the best study in all sort of groups, cisgender and transgender and same sex, is Truvada. That is the best studied of all of them. So there is, I think, a little bit of hesitancy to use like cabotegravir outside of NRF sex as far as the injectables go, if you're going for which of these has the best data in, in cisgendered heterosexual women, it would be Trivada. And on the back row. Oh, yeah. Back on the topic of post-exposure prophylaxis, yeah. I've heard talk that there's a new PEP regimen for gonorrhea and chlamydia. Yes. Some people are keeping it on hand for infusing exposure. <laughs> so, yeah, there's there is some data on using doxycycline as like a post-exposure prophylaxis. And this makes us infectious disease like folks a little bit nervous. The doxycycline will help with the chlamydia, but shouldn't necessarily help with the gonorrhea. Gonorrhea has become more and more drug resistant over time. And I'm sure you've heard these horror stories. I went to Thailand and now I have gonorrhea for good. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not like for good, it's not good gonorrhea. It's not like gonorrhea, it's not gonorrhea that's like rescuing cats out of trees. Well, and in general we get nervous because anytime you have an antibiotic for that oh no situation, we worry about people taking a partial course. Yeah. And partial courses of any antibiotic for any infection increase the likelihood of developing resistant bacteria that are going to be more and more problems down the road. Yeah, so what you're referring to is using doxycycline and there is there have been some studies on that that in high-risk communities, especially like people with multiple partners or doing like anonymous sex or like sex in clubs, chloribols, all that good stuff. Using post-exposure prophylaxis doxycycline did reduce specific, it was specifically in chlamydia, but you would also see a reduction in, in likely in syphilis. And there, I think there may have also been a reduction in gonorrhea, even though it wouldn't necessarily treat it, because oftentimes these STIs, you increase your likelihood of getting an STI by having another STI. So if you have, for example, genital herpes, your risk of acquiring HIV is much higher. Anything that interferes with your immune system or yeah. the integrity of oh, your skin is. or mucous membranes yeah. Makes it easier to catch anything. Yes. Uh, the type of HIV 
the receptor sexually transmitted. I believe the subtype E, is that correct? We're dealing with, in this country, you're dealing with HIV-1. Yeah, the, there's two types of HIV, but the second type I almost never see because it's primarily in West Africa. Yeah, that, and so that, that, was, that was my HIV point. Is there, right, that, that has sub, several subtypes, and I guess the most the one that affects the loggerhand cells, if I'm correct mm -hmm. on that, is subtype E2. But anyways, that's the one that's really causing problems with heterosexual transmission. Have we seen that here at all? Do so we, when we actually test folks for HIV, we're just getting fits HIV, HIV one or two. What sort of distinction it would make would probably be in what drugs you can use to treat it with. And you would check something called a genotype in that case. And what that does is that gives you a lot more information about, okay, this HIV would be sensitive to these medications or potentially resistant to others. So it doesn't really matter what type it is yeah. until you are test positive and then they're trying to figure out the best drug regimen. Yeah. In heterosexual transmission in the United States, is it more prevalent for a bisexual male to give it to a receptive female or does it, yeah. it, is it that's very common. It, it does does it go the other way? A heterosexual female that never had a bisexual partner give it to a heterosexual male that never had sex with men? As far as membranes that can catch things easiest, receptive anal sex is the highest ease of risk of catching something, easiest to disrupt that mucous membrane integrity. The vagina where it has so much mucous membrane that can stay in contact with sexual fluids, a lot of it is how much abrasion there is, how much likelihood of something tearing, disrupting that membrane, and how frequent the contact is. So a lot of it has to do with where it's contacting more so than who contacted it. And blood more, far more than any other secretion as far as... If you're sharing needles yeah, I mean, you're and blood to blood kind of thing. Or tear in the vagina or whatever. Yeah, that's why you catch stuff. There is a lot more kind of question where more transgender transitioning is happening that's not as binary as it once was and sometimes involves surgical changes or not surgical changes and sometimes has to also involve contraception depending on the gender of the partner. So that is one of those things to where unfortunately most of the other primary care I've talked to never consider the part of possibly having to do contraception in someone who's transgender and the interactions. And so are there any questions specific to that? Like how to find a physician that would be interested or that would be able to help you? So usually if you can find a therapist, they're gonna know which physicians in the area are going to offer the therapy. That's probably the most direct route because it doesn't seem to work as well the other way around because physicians are a bit more of an uptight community as a whole. Uh, I do have one question on that because I have several partners that are trans and they are in a polycule and one of their polycule members is female to male trans, trans person who is on a, has an IUD but may have to have the IUD removed and is considering having birth control pills. That person is also on testosterone. Estrogen, testosterone, is that gonna really cause a conflict? So anything with estrogen may potentially pose some 
mood changes and sense of self changes for anyone identifying as male. So anything with testosterone, but IUDs aren't the only form of progesterone only or non-hormonal contraception. So there are still options that don't involve IUDs if the IUD has to come out. But anything that involves estrogen can have those feminizing effects as far as mood, body composition, all those things that can negatively impact the way one feels about themselves and their gender. Yeah. And there's always a non-hormonal IUD you can get as well, the copper tea, if you just didn't want to have one. We're doing two. Hmm. Sure. There's also a concern that somebody who is has successfully changed their sexual orientation legally, but still has the biological characteristics of the other sex can have difficulty with their insurance actually even approving certain testing that is specific to one sex group. I live in Florida, that's not only become a problem, but the other problem is that the physicians are not even, uh, it's now becoming very difficult to legally treat a transgender person. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh for sure. But like, Dan has a, a, yeah. had a case. But, yeah, I had somebody that needed female-specific STI testing looking for the stuff like trichomonas and bacteria vaginosis. And they were a, a transgender male. And they're like, no, I, my insurance won't cover this because my license says I'm a male. And they're not gonna cover BV testing. And even in, this, in the hospital wouldn't run the test, the lab called yeah. and said, yeah, the lab this, won't is, run it. this is a male, why are we running this test? They're like, why is this a, mis- a mistake? It's, uh, it's, post, was, it's somebody who is post-legal sex change on their license. It has nothing to do with whether they're post-op or pre-op or any. And the thing is, over the last five, ten years, though, a lot of the self-pay prices for hormones when your insurance doesn't cover it or for hormone testing has gotten much more affordable than it was ten years ago. Ten years ago, if someone wanted testosterone and their insurance said no, which it often did, it was near impossible to get. Now there are actually more places. Usually it's one pharmacy in a bigger area that'll have it cheaper, but there are more affordable options now than there were a decade ago, even if it's not covered by insurance. Yeah, now, I'm very soapbox about all this, but I mean, they, unfortunately we live in a country that doesn't follow the data when it comes to this, and that folks who do transition when you look at long-term data, very few of them actually come to regret it. And you also see dramatic reduction in suicide in yeah. folks who have that ability. And I've battled some insurances and sometimes right. lost, even though I was telling them that they would pay for testosterone for someone who has a problem with the erection, but not someone who it would decrease their mortality. Yeah. It's a massive problem in this country. I've had transgender friends for almost 40 years. Yeah. And it's horrible. right now it's horrible. I've, I've talked several friends down about suicides and everything else. I've got a friend that's having a hard time keeping her son alive. Mm-hmm. But the hormones are much more affordable. Yeah. Usually you might have to shop around for them. But like in Chattanooga, I know there's a couple of pharmacies that if your insurance doesn't cover it, still can be affordable for a lot of people yeah. kind of things. So it is still accessible even if your insurance is an asshole. Yeah. In major cities, it can be hard to find folks mm-hmm. who specialize in doing hormone treatment and things like that. Oftentimes, they'll be 
endocrinology, sometimes their primary care. And, and because there is a trend towards testosterone treatment for postmenopausal women, for mood, for other things, sometimes it's getting a little bit easier to cover for the transgender folks because it's becoming more socially acceptable to treat women with testosterone mm -hmm. for things. Not necessarily the other way around, but there's a lot of places where it is a little bit easier on the testosterone side of things. Uh, and locally, Grady Memorial Hospital and Emory have a gender clinic that's physically located at Grady. The biggest issue with it is they don't have enough staff and sometimes the appointments take a little bit of time. They have a mental health component, they have the hormone therapy component, and it is a really fantastic, they're, doing, they're also doing research, it's a, it's, it's a large research project for Emory to help to gather information to continue supportive care which is really great. But there will be information about transgender care as well in the guide that I send you. What are the questions you guys have for us? I've been hearing talk lately of people that are on either antidepressants or anxiety. There's a bunch of sexual side effects that can come from there. There's Research now showing that there's a Parkinson's medication that's getting prescribed off-label to treat those side effects. Um, and this is, I, I don't want to tell you wrong. I will say a lot of times when I'm starting some of those antidepressants and stuff, sometimes it is a little bit of a balancing act, a little bit of trial and error because being depressed or anxious also has an effect on sex drive, and so sometimes the drug effect on those things is less than the mood effect of those things. So it is, a lot of those have that as a potential side effect, and so there's a lot of people I talk to about, let's try it, let's see how it works for you. If you have intolerable side effects, we'll try and change it. But a lot of times since we don't know that balance, how it'll turn out for someone, whether it's more depression causing problems with sex drive or more the that medication might cause problems, it is a balancing act. Yeah. So like specifically the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors and the the other class SN, SNRI selective nucleotide reuptake inhibitors are associated with that. But I'll have to look at the other but but there's other types that you can use that like Wellbutrin bupropion, which is less associated with having sexual dysfunction. But she Absolutely. And something called anhedonia is part of a lot of people's depression where they lose the interest in the sex. Yeah, depression, sometimes we refer to anhedonia because that's losing interest in things you typically enjoy. And so sometimes people aren't super depressed, depressed when they're depressed. They just have no enjoyment in things that they typically would. And so it, it is a little bit of a balancing act because we still don't have great predictive tests of which drugs great best for this person. That's right. It's That's still, right. we know this category should work for you. We're going to yeah. pick one and try it yeah. <laughs> out of this category. There's, there's a lot of anti-seizure medications that are used for mood stabilizers. Yes. And so there's absolutely a trend to to use medications as off-label in psychiatry to help find a better medication regimen. And so it would not be surprising just make if sure anyone with the uterus, if you're on any of those, that they know whether or not there's any chance of sperm getting in there and potential of pregnancy because a lot of 
those drugs do have teratogenic possible baby deforming effects if you were to get pregnant, so being aware of that. And another thing I didn't mention earlier, anyone who has a cervix should get regular pap smears. So no matter what you identify as, if you have a cervix, finding someone who will do a pap smear, although sometimes that's a little hard to arrange depending on how receptive your local physician is. Yeah. I know the new recommendation for pap smears is every three years or something like that. So how often do we need to and how do we justify if you've had normal pap smears before, up through 35, it's every three years with HPV testing. After, I think it's 35 now, mm -hmm. every now and then they change the age. At, above that, if you've had normal pap smears before and you get HPV testing with the pap smear, it's every five years now. And part of that's because cervical cancer, when it develops, takes about 10 years to develop. Mm -hmm. So since if we catch that early, we can get rid of it, whereas if we wait till it leaves the cervix, it's near impossible to treat. Um, so that's why they moved it to if you do it with HPV testing, which since a lot of cancers are associated with HPV, then for women above the, I think it's 35 now, it's every five years, mm -hmm. as long as you've had some normals before that. But like I said earlier, I had HPV back yeah, lots of some umpteen years ago, and I've had clear ever since. But how often do I need to be getting tested? Because I'm poly, I have multiple partners. I'm yeah. fluid bonded to two. So the pap smears are separate from necessarily sexually transmitted infection testing. Below the age of 35, if they do HPV testing with it, mm -hmm. and you've had at least two normals the previous pap smear, then it's every three years, and then after that, every five. If you get an abnormal, then you have to come back sooner. But it doesn't matter if you had an abnormal a decade ago, but you've had normal since then. That's fine to do the spaced out, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't get the sexually transmitted infection testing more frequently because the pap smear is testing for cancer. Okay, but I thought the pap smear was the only way to test for HPV. That's the way we usually test for HPV. In general, we don't go checking for HPV all the time. We're trying to prevent it. But I do. But he does more rectal, right? So I think we alluded this to this earlier. At least a lot of the patients I see are doing some butt stuff. And I do rectal paps annually on folks. And what we can do is we can do HPV DNA in type So it's a PCR test and it will tell you, is this a high risk type? Oh, polymerase chain reaction? I, for some reason, I'm like, everybody knows so about COVID all, now. So all the HPV testing nowadays that's done from some sort of genital anal area is we're getting a certain portion of transition zone between cells and looking for the actual virus, which is PCR testing. Yeah, yeah. So either cervically or rectally, you could do HPV PCR testing and get an idea, is this a high-risk type or a low-risk type? You said or, but should it be both? Or yeah, so when you get like a regular pap smear, yeah, you get both a pap smear and HPV. No, which is not the standard. Oh, um, is that what you're asking? Were you yeah. asking both vaginally, vaginally and anally? Vaginally and anally, because you were saying or, but do you mean both or do you mean? The gynecology recommendations do not include the rectal. Yeah. That is more based on risk factors and whether you ask for it. Okay. Yeah, so. Will the PCR test 
So if you, if you get a vaginal PCR yeah. HPV yeah. test, will that show all over your body whether or not you have HPV, or does that only show for vaginal sighting of? Okay. But we also can't really screen the throat for it until yeah. you have a mass that looks like it might be cancer. So it's one of those to where part of it is driven by, do you have something funny going on to where we're worried about what that is and is it cancerous kind of thing? Because primary right. care never does the throat swabs for HPV. Yeah. Very rarely does rectal swabs, although it's the same type swab as a pap smear. It's just in a different place, but because of the typical recommendations, it's not going to be something that's usually offered unless you ask. But when we do these rectal PAPs, it's not just getting the DNA. I'm also looking at cytopathology, like you would a standard cervical PAP, and it will tell you, like you'll see oftentimes earlier, you'll find something called atypical cells of unknown significance, or ASCUS, or you'll see early changes, which is why I do these annually on the rectal PAP, especially if someone has multiple partners. So I picked up a bunch of early changes, and what you do at that point is I send them to a colorectal doctor, and they do something called anoscopy, which is they just take, take a, a camera, little, yeah, they just into your take a little flexible camera, and they're like, oh, "How do you do?" And you get the right Insta Instagram filter on there, and <laughs> they're all like, "It's bleach blonde for the summer." <laughs> Sparkles please, coming please out. Please don't put bleach in your ass. You <laughs> <laughs> know, bleaching is a thing. It is a thing. I, I know. You want to, you want to make it look good. Do not put straight bleach in your ass. No, don't do that. That's also, going to end up with some burns. That don't drink bleach either. Just, yeah. just to throw that out there. Like, yeah. for external cleaning of yeah. other things that are not your body. Yeah. 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 Change my plans for the Yep. <laughs> rectal uh, test? Yes. Yeah. And so if you just ask for it, it's covered. I think you're going to have a much more successful time getting it covered if you see an infectious disease doctor and, yeah. and have them know about the risks. So oftentimes testing will be determined based on how the doctor codes your visit. So we use these things called ICD codes. So when we, after we're done seeing you, like we'll put on there something like, the test code I like to use is exposure to STD. So like, I know that will oftentimes get the Which, testing I need covered. If you look at electronic health record, if you have patient access, sometimes we'll read as high risk sexual activity just because it's the code, it's the way the computer calls it. And just be aware that sometimes that's what yeah, it is. Don't be offended. I try not to actually use that code. When I first started, that's how everybody was coding it, would be like high risk heterosexual or they were divided between heterosexual and homosexual, there may be a bisexual activity. I don't like to do that. I don't like to put that code in there because I think it stigmatizes people. And my patients see that. They see those codes because they'll often get a billing summary from their insurance. So I don't like to use those codes. I think that shames people. So I like to use the potential exposure. Yeah, so I always like to use exposure to STI because that will use, that will cover risk-based testing. And whenever I do my documentation, I talk about the patient was screened for appropriate risk-based testing. And I think that's key. And that's why the interview is so important when you are with your physician, like inter having a dia an open dialogue back and forth about what you do. And I always ask 
open questions. I don't say tough. And oftentimes I'll say, yeah, so tell me about, have you been sexually active in the last 12 months? And then, if so, tell me more about that. And then they're, oh, I don't know what to do. And then if, they, if they're nervous about it or need a step, I'll say, usually my first question is, are you sexually active with male, female, transgender, non-binary individuals? I usually will start with that. And they're like, oh, you're someone that's like me. And then they usually has folks open up. So I think it's a good idea to have like open questions. But I will say when I was training students and residents and I would try and teach them those things, they would be nervous about asking about anything about sex. And then I'd have to show them that if you ask about it, most people just feel glad you're asking them about sex. And that doesn't matter which category they're in, most people are like, hey, cool, but you I think I have sex. <laughs> so even the people who don't fit in any other random category didn't get offended like most people getting trained they will, but because people think they will get offended, they don't ask, and so they never learn to ask. Yeah. One other thing that we often will like to address in these panels, and we haven't really touched on it because we got into STDs, but talking about health-related specific things related to kink specifically. If you guys have any questions about that, oftentimes we'll get questions about, yeah. I'm a rope top, and I tie a lot of people with different body types. Yeah. Some of my partners are trans, some of them are uh, gender female. and. I'm worried because of the also different age ranges. Sometimes I worry about deep vein thrombosis from food aromas or from different suspension positions. Now, I'm a former paramedic. I've never had a problem. I've been tying for sure. decades, but I still worry about it. Yeah. Now I've got two physicians in the room that are kink friendly. Yeah. No, I've been wanting to ask this question. That's a good question. I haven't gotten that one yet. Thank you. That's a really good one. Anything that keeps someone from moving for hours at a time because would probably fit in the same category as sedentary activity, like people taking long flights, there's yep. things Short about drugs. blood clots. So part of it is how long they are being kept immobile. Yep. And then part of it is how much is a tourniquet effect on any particular area that may prevent blood return and muscle movement that's going to decrease risk of blood clots. So one of the things I would recommend is if that person is going to be stationary for a long time, you can either take them out of that like lower, lower leg restraint and have them do like calf pumps, okay? Because your, the venous system in your lower extremities is a one-way valve system. It requires muscle contraction to do. If that person is going to be restrained for a long period and you're not going to be able to take them out, you may want to try doing like calf pumps or calf squeezes. It's not going to be a flawless method, but it may help some because in the hospital we use these things called sequential compression devices or SCDs. And these are little inflatable devices that will kind of blow up on the legs and compress a little bit. And that does reduce the risk of DVT. But if they've had a blood clot before those. and they're not on blood thinners, their risk will be higher. Yeah, and it, it, that, I think it's a good idea to have a, a good screening questionnaire before you do any scenes, especially with new people. Like have a, a detailed screening, oh, that's always a plus. Have a detailed screening questionnaire. It's, you may want to ask about specific traumas in the past. I think mental health questioning is a really important part of that and often gets overlooked. Oftentimes people will have PTSD and it's good to know things that could trigger that, but also ask about specific health conditions like are you an easy leader? 
or have you had issues with clots in the past? If you're doing something like electrical play with someone, do you have any pacemakers? Do you have any implants and medical devices? Do you have a history of atrial fibrillation or a irregular heart rate? These are the questions that we usually get during this panel. Now, I will say as far as marks on someone, generally if someone does not have any evidence of mental impairment, retardation, that sort of thing, between the age of 18 and 65, someone may go, hey, are you in a domestic violence type situation, but usually it's left up to that person. Most states above the age of 65, if they suspect any kind of abuse, their healthcare people are mandatory reporters so that they're supposed to call Adult Protective Services with anyone that they suspect abuse above the age of 65. So that can put things in a different situation than adults below that age where it's more left up to the individual because in domestic violence situations in adults if the healthcare person escalates it and the person's not ready to leave it increases the violence and so that's why usually between 18 and 65 if there's no evidence of significant mental impairment we ask them if they want resources <coughs> if they want something but we don't tend to push it Whereas above 65, sometimes we're in a different kind of category of reporting. Uh, and, and so, Kingster above 65, like myself, what do I need to watch for? If there's anything to where you see someone who sees bruises, asks about any kind of abuse, you may get a call from Adult Protective Services. In general, it's supposed to be a screening call, and if there's no evidence of abuse with the follow-up from Adult Protective Services, that it doesn't go farther than that. But sometimes that ball can be started rolling if someone is concerned. And they don't have to tell you they're concerned. Most of the time they will ask questions that make you realize they're concerned. But I will say that's just something to be aware of, just as far as different categories and how healthcare people react to things. And as a social worker, typically if a doctor sees something that they're concerned about instead of them reporting directly, a lot of times they'll have the social worker do so, ask some follow-up questions first before. And if they are over 65, I would be honor-bound to report it. I am a mandated reporter. But I also can report it and tell Adult Protective Services there does not seem to be any true risk. The client does not feel they are at risk of harm. However, these injuries do exist and we want to make sure that, and, or it, we can even say this person has indicated they are in an alternative lifestyle and there are no consent issues with these injuries and they still will probably come out and speak to the person, but it's going to be maybe from starting from a different point than I have a very high concern that there is abuse here. On, on that very topic, my wife and I went up to Toronto when we came out of the hotel, she tripped and fell on the concrete, Oof, yeah. right. ground her glasses down, broke her nose. Yeah. And we wound up driving to Niagara Falls Hospital for treatment. By the time we got there, she looked like I beat the living crap out of her. Oh, yeah. yeah. Any and face injury is going to be horrible, yes. I was fully expecting the medical professionals to separate us and ask her all the and they never did. Mm. And I think the reason was because they saw the interaction between the two of mm -hmm. us and both have both of our orders mm -hmm. in the water and 
anybody that knows my wife would know that if I ever hit her in anger, <laughs> I would not wake up the next morning. And a lot of it is, does the injury fit what we were told? Yeah. yeah it, it, if it's you have so. cane marks on your ass, but you said, I fell down the steps, yeah. that doesn't yeah. match. That raises my suspicion. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's one of those, does it match whatever we were told? Does this person seem like they could ask for help? So watching that interaction would be really important. If I had any questions for safety, I would have security with me when I go in the room and ask the partner to please leave. I have some personal questions that I need to That's ask. That's what I was expecting to happen, right. actually. Yeah. And I thought, if they ask either one of us about our lifestyle, our policies were open about it. I thought, in this case, maybe that's not such a smart idea. But <laughs> that didn't happen. And I was actually a little concerned that it didn't happen. But I think that it goes absolutely to what Yeah, uh, if you have Peggy major said. bruising, all looks like it happened around the same time and it fits with what yeah. we were told, and nobody's trip. acting funny, there's some weird story going on, right. someone's well, controlling. The glasses yeah, if there was like yeah, bits but, of concrete in the glasses. But yeah. that, that fits with one single injury sure. that happened as long as it fits. Thank you all. So for th just in case you were, you guys weren't here at the beginning, I am sending out a resource list if you live in the local Atlanta area via email. If you'd like to, please come give me your email address. No worries. Okay. It's all good. It's even worse than here. So we got a couple minutes left. If you have any other questions, or we can just tell you funny stories about medicine. Funny you can always find we us afterwards, do. too. So there are cards up here. If you would yeah. like to get their personal information, I'll also include that on the yeah. email. Yeah. And if, you're if any if, of you would like to sign up for if the, you're listening yeah, on the podcast. Okay. Yeah, so if you're listening on the podcast at home, yes, I am addressing everyone in the room, even though you're not probably the ones listening to this, this thing that does not yet exist. So if you're in listening to this podcast at home and you want to come see Dr. Dan, I'm the infectious disease physician. I'm out in Lawrenceville. My office phone number is 770-995-0466. If you are in Chattanooga. I'm Dr. Peggy Sue, and my office number is 423-877-7999. And I do primary care. It's the Chattanooga area. Technically, it's called Hickson. Yeah, but both of us love seeing folks in the community and have been doing this for years. And that is what drives us. And we've been doing this panel, what, six years, maybe seven? A lot. Uh, we've done this a lot. Not no, we were doing it over 10 years ago. Yeah. Because <laughs> I've been board getting... certified for 10 years, and yeah. we did this before Same. I finished residency, so. Yeah. We're practically at 10% discounted IHOP age. <laughs> but yeah, so like. Funny, funny. We usually have funnier stories, so usually this is a funnier panel than this, so but now we're like, we gotta add COVID stuff messed stories. up a lot of stuff, we still gotta yeah. get back into things. Do you have any, so I was gonna say, Death Code Sprinkles would be a funny story. One day we're gonna make a musical together, Robin is a singer, and it's gonna be <laughs> the social work the musical is what yeah. she wants to make. Yeah. And one of our songs is gonna be about, there. we were talking about antidepressants and mood stabilizers, and. There's one product that we think is magical unicorn dust. Yeah. It's called Depakote Sprinkles because so, there is a... Yeah, so Depakote is used for boost stabilization and for people who either refuse to take the medication and need it or and are at a risk of harm if they did not take it. 
and or cannot swallow a pill. They have sprinkles yeah. that will go on the that food. You can put on cupcakes. And this like. should be piped through like I know. the air vents. Like so everybody could use a little food stabilization. Robin, Robin is, I know you've, you've made your bed sheets into a diaper, pooped in them, and have flung them around your head, which is something that actually happened. something that happened oh. at Grady's Psychiatry, like, like, yes. And we yes. would like to reward this behavior with a, a, a cupcake. cupcake. <laughs> with special sprinkles. Please. Yeah, like, please. You win the prize for the, the fastest repainting of this room. <laughs> have this cupcake. You bring the answer to a funny question. Okay. Yeah, so it's a mood it's a mood stabilizer specifically for people who are which is like more like the bipolar. Usually bipolar. Bipolar, yeah. yeah. Like I said, my one real partner is a member of a, a polycule that has several trans people in it. For and we share a birthday. So I went over to show celebrate my birthday with them and they handed me this beautiful cupcake and they said, This isn't the one with the special sprinkles and I oh. had no idea. <laughs> Depakote sprinkles. And that's only. hilarious. Yeah, we can probably close out. Should I tell the cautionary tale? Because you didn't think I've ever told it in any of these years. And it's just one of the most. In infectious yeah. disease, we see bizarre shit, as you imagine. This is, I did not personally see this case. This Another infectious disease colleague was telling me about this. And I don't know. It's just the perfect Polycon infectious disease story. So he comes, this guy is in the hospital, and he keeps coming in with urinary tract infections. And in, in a young male, that's maybe not the most common thing. There could be anatomical reasons, but my colleague, my infectious disease colleague, was diving in and talking about sex partners and things like that. And he said, I wonder if this is related to my work. And like, oh, what are you doing for work? And he's, oh, I'm a human wine decanter. And they're all like, what? And he's like, yeah, so it's, I'm a wine server at parties. And what I do is I will take a bottle of wine and I will get a Foley catheter. I will pour that bottle of wine into the Foley bag and run it in reverse. So they will like basically By the way, anything with sugar that's put into the body bad that's not digested idea. is a bad idea when it comes yes. to infections. Yes. <laughs> I learned this when I was a teenager in the Mall of Georgia parking lot with <laughs> Sugar should not go in anything like, other than the mouth. You, should, you know what would make this better is if my hoo-ha tasted like a Charms blow pop. And that was seen afterwards. It was like, yeah, that was a bread box afterwards. Anyway, so human wine decanter guy. So what he would do, yeah, he would pour a bottle of wine using a Foley catheter into a Foley bag and pour it in. And then he would just go around to parties and be like, would you like a refill, sir? And then they're like, yes, I can go for a refill. They're like, would you like your wine? aerated or would you like it directly from the source so this guy was going around and some people were like yes i would like wine directly from the source and they would just get on their knees and literally drink wine out of this guy's coffee yeah. <laughs> I, I will say presidential suites and the person in the store I will say that if you have someone who's new to the kink community, the non-kink community is not good about discussing things beforehand, asking about consent beforehand, so sometimes you'll get some people new to the community that may do things that people in the community would never think to do without talking about beforehand because straight, heterosexual, heteronormative people don't typically learn about discussions of boundaries and consent beforehand and 
And it's just one of those, they don't talk about it and that's a problem. <laughs> and just be aware if someone's new to the community, they may not know how to talk about things as well because that's a bigger problem in the non-kink community and there's been lots of people that I have and I have taught them kink communication skills and they had no idea where these communication skills came from, but they need to know them. <laughs> yes, absolutely. First of all, it made you a better doctor. Yeah, I think so. Any other final questions for y'all? You're in the ER, right? Okay, the craziest story that's ever been presented. Yeah. I just didn't need you to know. Yeah. That's the weirdest thing you've ever seen. What is the weirdest thing I've ever seen? Oh, I'll try and talk the so I had a gentleman who was on the observation unit and they short term admission to the psychiatric hospital. They they probably needed they likely needed some sort of resource that we were waiting on. So either hospitalization in the state hospital or something like this. That takes just a little bit of time. They're still getting active treatment while they're there. They just don't have a room and they're not in actual long-term treatment at that moment. That room is typically filled with about 30, 35 people on a regular day. And this individual keeps leaving their chair with their blankets and like moving over to the other side of the room and going back to their chair and going back to the room. And I start to notice that they're wetting the blanket. And I was like, I asked one of the staff, could we probably make sure that I'm going to say Mr. Smith for this. Can we ask Mr. Smith to leave his blanket on his chair? I'm not sure what's going on, but there's some strange thing going on. He's getting his sheets wet and it might cause problems. And so they went and they asked him and he was like, he's like, I'm going to do what I want to do. And it's like, yeah, Mr. Smith seems pretty harmless. Maybe it's not important to push this. They keep letting him get up and move around with the sheets on. Not very long after that, He's laughing and he takes the sheet and he's kind of spinning it a little toward the ground and nobody's really paying attention and then all of a sudden it gets faster and faster and it's up in the air and he helicopters his excrement all over. He had been using the water because it would thin it out and help it travel further. So it makes me think he's probably done this before, so yeah, different. He's engineered this. And, and the whole like north corner of the, the crisis unit at Grady was covered in this man's fecal yes. matter. Which wouldn't be a problem. Gross, but not a problem. Except this man was in stage HIV, yeah. and so now there's this huge infection risk. Oh, that's and it, like anyway, so that that is the weird. That's I think that's the weirdest thing I've ever seen. Yeah, I have a, I have some funny stories. I have one more that's really funny. I can tell you afterward. You've shamed many people that have masturbated in front of you. That too. I yeah. will say, do not mix up where you keep your lube and any other creams. Uh, especially if you keep it next to like the Pro capsaicin. Tip. <laughs> yeah, do not mix it up with the capsaicin. People have been harmed with that before. Yeah. So always make sure you know where your lubes are in the dark <laughs> and not near other things that so, could be mistaken. We have a question over here. yourself or others after making salsa, I've found out. So asexual transmission of HPV, there's plenty of great information on warts and yeah. cerebral cancer causing HPV, but what or about HPV. surface contact 
Like, I know it can't infect your hands because the different strains like to infect different places. But if you have a wart, someone spanks like, you, yeah. and then goes and spanks someone else's but or yeah, so you're like talking about like cutaneous or planar warts, things like that. Yeah, yeah they are caused by HPV. I know warts yeah, can totally be transmitted surface. Yeah, absolutely. But in um, yeah, they're surface. Yeah, so there's something called like fomite transmission, which is what we consider like a surface contact or from an object. Oftentimes, viruses like HS, herpes simplex and HPV are very poor at that because they are rap rapidly inactivated by, by desiccation or drying out. So usually the amount of time that they can survive on the surface is usually pretty minimal. So it is usually from direct contact. So if they are not fluid bonded, it may be worth doing something, either soap and water yeah. or a disinfectant in between people who are not fluid bonded with fomites. But getting back to Random this, things. Gardasil 9, everybody. Gardasil 9, if you're under 45, you got a good chance of getting it covered. If you're over 45, you should still talk to them and you may have to pay out of pocket. But I think it's one of those things where the benefit, especially if you have multiple partners or engaged with partners of different vendors. Yeah, we used to not test for so it because high. we didn't know what to do about it. Yeah. And, and then we found out how many cancers it plays a part in, and now we have the vaccine. Yeah. But there's no other real treatment other than burning a wart or doing some other just Chemo. direct treatment. There's no, like, drug. Yeah. We haven't really covered it in the panel, but there will also be some mental health resources oh, yeah. on the guide. And and there's also going to be information in reference to personal domestic violence, yeah. partner violence, because that does happen in every community and, and it should not be tolerated in any community. We want to thank all of you guys for coming. This has been Absolutely. great. This is our first time doing it since the pandemic. <laughs> we were both super busy. But it, it was... It's a hard time for everybody, and if anybody wants to come up, at least for me, if you need a hug, I know it's been a hard couple years. So if you want to come up, get it. Even the people listening at the podcast at home <laughs> can come to my office for one free hug. Ask for the hug first, consent first. Yes, for me. For me. Yes. If you're if you need But thank you all for coming. You have been listening to the Kinky Cast. For more information about this show, go to kinkycast.com. Views expressed are not representative of the management of the Kinky Cast, and we welcome guests with opposing viewpoints. The Kinky Cast is a production of Rooster in the Round. On behalf of all our Kinky crew, I'm Max.